0: Well, good morning. All right, that's good. Uh, it's an honor to be able to uh, bring the Word before you this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, Joe Garrison. Uh, I'm the student pastor here at the church, and so it is a joy that I get to be here every once in a while and uh, read through some of Scripture. But as I was reflecting on our text in 1 Samuel 16, uh, a movie came to mind it's a movie called vantage point uh, which came out in 2008 which feels like a long time ago at this point uh, but just mere moments i guess in my life but 2008 it's a political thriller uh, about an assassination attempt on the president of the united states and the part that i enjoy about the movie is are the vantage points that the movie is told from so different perspectives of the different characters and so, throughout the movie, you see the same scene played over and over, but from the perspective of that, the vantage point of that character. And so, gradually, the story unfolds, and you know uh, what actually happened, who did what, and when. And so, as we turn to our text in 1 Samuel 16, we, I think we see two vantage points, two different vantage points in God's anointing of his new king, both Samuel, or as I would argue, man's, and God's. As you imagine, they're quite different, but as we look at each perspective, we're going to gain a greater sense of who God's going to anoint as king, why he does, and ultimately trusting in what we can see is not what truly matters. So while we like to focus on the human characters here, and we'll talk about a few of them, and we'll spend a little bit of time focusing and thinking about ourselves, the main actor is God. The one who humbles the prideful expectations of man and raises up the humble and unlikeliest to serve him and his good purposes. And so we're going to see three things this morning. Man's cloudy vision, God's clear choice of Jesse's son, and then God's clear rejection of King Saul. So let's read uh, chapter 16, verse 1. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul? because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And then Jesse made Shammah pass by, and he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all your sons here? And he said, There remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and get him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. And Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me a man who can play well, and bring him to me. One of the young men answered, Behold. I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful and plain, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a man of good presence. And the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David his son to Saul. And David came to Saul and entered his service. And Saul loved him greatly, and he became his armor-bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. And whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word, the inspired, the inerrant word you have given. We pray for wisdom now, uh, for myself, but also for us here. Uh, that you would speak through your word to us and teach us in this time uh, what you would have us learn about you and about ourselves. So we thank you. We praise you this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as Pastor Matt mentioned, uh, we are in a shift in the story of First Samuel. Uh, chapter 15 uh, covered Saul's rejection as king. And so we see this moment where the kingdom has been torn away from Saul, and now it's going to be given to a neighbor of his. While Saul, of course, would still be the physical king for a while longer, spiritually he is no longer the rightful king on the throne. And this rejection of Saul caused not just a disturbance in his own life, as we'll see momentarily, but actually caused a disturbance and caused the Lord's prophet Samuel to be in grief and mourning over what had happened. The one who had to deliver that message of rejection, Samuel, is now grieving over what's happened to Saul. The question is, why is he overcome with grief? Well, he's the one who had anointed Saul. He was the one who had worked alongside Saul, had poured time into Saul's life and ministry, and now to see what has happened, he's heartbroken. This whole king thing that they were doing... It's come to a screeching halt. And perhaps Samuel begins to wonder what's going to come next. Is Israel in peril in general? Is perhaps God going to send in his enemies and say, Enough's enough, I'm done. Grief and mourning are perfectly fine responses and absolutely necessary in given situations. I think we know that. But in the Lord's response to Samuel when he says to him, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? In that response, it sounds like maybe the grief and the mourning has perhaps turned to bitterness or anger has started to take root. I say, thankfully, Samuel's response is never like ours, right? We never um, go over the top with our emotions, do we, ever? My, okay, yes, I'd say we do. Uh, and I'd argue about far less seemingly important things. We can Our whole day can be thrown when one little schedule change happens. Say we get a flat tire out on the road. Well, there goes the day. This is wrong and this is wrong and the sky is falling and it becomes all of this. Well, God, why did this happen? And we get so angry when our grades are not what we had hoped for when we fail that test, and all of a sudden that's going to ruin the nine different plans that we had laid out moving forward. Or as I said at the first service, when your child grabs a Sharpie marker and then encourages their younger sibling uh, to do the same and go to your new how, in your new house to your new sliding glass doors and make that their most recent art project. <clears throat> Not speaking from any experience. Needless to say, though, for Samuel... It was a dreary-looking day in his eyes. If it was a weather report, it would have been rain, rain, rain all day. But then in the midst of Samuel's grief, here comes the Lord. To not only mildly rebuke him for his overmourning, but to let him know, Samuel, oh, the sky is not falling, my friend. This is not too large of a situation for God. He's not lost sight of his people. My plans and purposes are not deterred. Everything is moving forward. I'm in control and I'm ready to choose my next king. There is hope after all. Like a rainbow at the end of the storm, there is hope in the sovereign God of all creation. He's not going to abandon his people, even in the moments of greatest distress, heartache, or worry. So as we go through God's response to Samuel, I want you to note or underline the amount of times that God says, I what you will see is that God's capital eyesight is seeing the situation much differently than Samuel's cloudy vision. My dear Samuel, he says, Why are you mourning? For I have rejected Saul. The time for mourning is past. Get off the floor and get moving, for I have important work for you to do. And so go fill your horn with oil, because there's a king that you're going to anoint. And a king among the sons of Jesse. In fact, I've provided. Or I have seen, and there's this seen theme all throughout this text, and God is saying, I have provided. I have seen for myself a king among his sons. While Samuel's eyes might have been perhaps a little blurry, overcome with a little bit of grief, God's sight is clear. I've got a new king. I've got a king that I'm going to choose. And so knowing that God's got this has probably caused Samuel to jump and get up and go, right? Well, not exactly. Samuel says something reasonable, I think. How can I go? Because if Saul hears it, he will kill me. Well, let's put ourselves in the shoes of Samuel and think about why is he afraid? Well, if you looked back at 1 Samuel 7.16, you're going to see that uh, Bethlehem wasn't on Samuel's normal prophetical circuit. So it could raise some suspicion with King Saul. Not only that, but this 10-mile journey would take the elderly Samuel right through Saul's neck of the woods, his very own town in Gibeah. It only takes a few, uh, your eyes to just go down the page just a smidge to see that Saul is unstable, to say the least. Things are not going well with Saul. And he's already been told that the kingdom's going to be given to a neighbor of his, and so now, if there's any sort of abnormal trip... the Lord's prophet Samuel, that would certainly cause him uh, to be a little suspicious and maybe lead him to come after Samuel. And so we can understand the fear that Samuel has, this prospect of going through Saul's town all the way to Bethlehem. And yet God is in complete control. He provides a way. Take a heifer, he says, and say you're coming to sacrifice. Saul's anointing started with donkeys on the run. And this son of Jesse's anointing begins with the cover of a heifer. And it's interesting just how God always used objects and animals and people according to his purposes for special tasks. And so with the instructions in hand, Samuel is obedient and goes to Bethlehem to anoint a king. He's yet to be shown who the king is going to be, but he knows it's among the sons of Jesse the Bethlehemite. And so he goes, trusting and obeying that God is going to make a way, that God is going to show him who. So as he makes it to Bethlehem, we see that Samuel isn't the only one fearing this journey. Samuel goes, and the elders of the city come to meet him trembling and say, Do you come peaceably? And we're not told why, but a few reasons why these elders of the city in Bethlehem could be a little nervous. One, they probably got word of what had happened between King Saul and Samuel. They knew that there was some strife between the Lord's prophet and now this rejected king. And so if they were beginning to invite him into the city, oh, what trouble that might mean for this little town. Maybe they got word about the hacking to pieces of King Agag and weren't sure if maybe somebody uh, there might be next. Or since, as I said before, Bethlehem wasn't on Samuel's normal prophetical circuit, perhaps he was coming to execute judgment for some sin that had been committed in the area. Showing up unannounced is never something that you're thrilled about. We get nervous, and so the people are nervous. But he clears up the concern and says, Peaceably, I've come. We're going to sacrifice to the Lord. And so he gets the elders, Jesse and his sons together for the sacrifice, and then there's going to be a meal following. And as this is going on, you can just imagine Samuel kind of making eye contact and keeping an eye on the different people who are around. And then he sees Eliab and immediately thinks, Ah, This is the one. This is the king. Now, we don't know exactly how Eliab looked, but based on the Lord's response to Samuel, he cut quite the figure. Handsome, well put together, seemingly a man of great height. He could be your uh, Tom Brady or your uh, Captain America uh, for you Marvel fans. Who knows? Uh, Maybe he was even last year's champion of Mr. Bethlehem. Uh, But needless to say, this was a man of great stature. And if the description of Eliab sounds familiar, that's because it should. Because in 1 Samuel 9, Saul was described in much the same way. A handsome young man, more handsome than any man in Israel. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. We've been down this road before, Samuel. Appearance is not everything. And yet, who can blame him? We aren't much different. Our vision is oftentimes solely focused on the outward appearance of people. That's why the beauty industry has been so successful over the years. Just think of all the infomercials and the products that are out there that can help you nip and tuck and cover and strengthen and accentuate your features. As a child, one of the things I would do uh, at f- when I was young on Sunday afternoons, we'd head to my grandparents' house a great time over there for a little family dinner, but one of the things I would do is sit down with my grandfather, and we would watch infomercials together on a Sunday afternoon. It was an exciting childhood experience for me. Uh, In fact, made my own infomercials. Anyway, if you've ever watched infomercials, you probably said to someone, if you're in the same room as someone, unless you're watching by yourself, you probably said, do people actually buy these things? The answer is yes. Yes, they absolutely do. Uh, My grandfather was notorious for buying products on television. Didn't matter matter if he had any need of it whatsoever, it'd be in his house in the next week. He was the person who would buy not just one ab roller, I don't know if you remember what those are, but he would buy two because he'd call in the next 10 minutes and he'd get a second one sent to him just with additional shipping and handling. For the longest time, I was convinced that my grandparents uh, were the initial investors in OxyClean and Orange Globe because it was the only place where I ever saw it at their house. But perhaps infomercials, you're not connecting with that. and You say, "Ah, Joe, infomercials, whatever. They're weird. Well, I'm sure you can all remember the days of the playground. And there you are. And they say, let's do team captains. Greatest nightmare for Joe Garrison. Anyone ever get picked last? Because that can sting just a little bit. And they say it's based on skill level. But let's be honest, in the younger ages, it was who's the tallest? You know, who's got the best look around them? Um, and in case you were concerned, that was not me. But maybe that playground, that you were always the tall person and great stature and always looked great, and so you're not concerned about that. But what about our fascination of getting the perfect photo of ourselves before we post it somewhere? How many times in the last week or two have you retaken a photo before you post it on social media because there was just one or two things that just weren't looking right? Did you maybe even use a filter or something else to hide or to change your appearance? I miss the days of Olin Mills. Uh, I'm not sure if they're even still in business. But when the only retakes you would get is be- when you're like Uncle Larry or something had his eyes closed. You're like, all right, we got to do the retakes again. We can certainly find some humor in the infomercials, the photos, the moments on the playground, but these examples ultimately point to a deeper heart idol that it can be present in us, the idol of appearance, where we judge others or strive so hard ourselves to look all put together on the outside while oftentimes neglecting the muddled mess on the inside. And yet, despite all of our best attempts at hiding and covering and keeping up our appearance, we know the body is perishable. No matter how many Band-Aids and anti-aging creams that we use, it only delays the inevitable decay of this temporal body. But let's move away from thinking about physical appearance, and um, let's move on to thinking about all the stuff that we seek to acquire to put on the right appearance. The phones, the tech, the newest car, the nice clothes, the bigger house, on and on it can go. The idolatry of always having to keep up appearances with everyone else in the hopes that somehow they will deem you worthy of their attention or then somehow, some way, you will be accepted. It lurks around every corner. No one wants to be on the outside looking in. But even as we get to the church, and we think about when we bring people here on staff as pastors, or we think about the school and we bring in uh, other teachers. Are we ever guilty of what Dale Ralph Davis says? What we seem to want are the movers and shakers, the aggressive extroverts, the pushers who meet people well and sell the church in a community, who are smooth in the pulpit. Do we ever ask, how does he pray? Does he enjoy being with his wife? Can he weep? So what credentials do we think are important? How discerning are we as we're bringing people in? In all of these different cases, the Lord, of course, is not saying it's wrong uh, to have wealth. It's not wrong to be an extrovert, to have a nice smile. It's not wrong to be good with people or to wear nice clothes, or even, as the Lord stating in this te- text, to be physically attractive. He, the son of Jesse puts that to bed with beautiful eyes, and he was handsome, we see in verse 12. But rather, the Lord's saying to Samuel, this is what your eye sees. This is what man sees. Beware of judging others by their appearance and then deeming them as the solution to our kingly problem, because their appearance doesn't tell the full story of who they are. I, the Lord, look at things differently. And that's what we see here in verse 7. Lord said to Samuel, Don't look on his appearance or the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees, not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And herein lies the very crux of the passage. God sees the heart of man, and here is his clear choice of Jesse's son. And so when it says that God can see or looks on the heart, there's that theme of seeing again. That means that God sees the thoughts, the emotions, the intentions, the motivations, the reason. Essentially, he knows the stuff of who we are. He's not amused by the personality or fooled by the appearance. He's the only one who sees us as we truly are. And this is why Samuel and the Israelites and why we today need his wisdom and why they needed his wisdom to select the next king. And so the Lord was looking for his next king to be someone who had a heart that loved him, a heart that desired to be faithful to him, a heart that would help shepherd and care for the people through difficult times, who would be someone who was submissive to the Lord's leading and his will instead of his own, who would spend time with the Lord and would seek his glory above all else. This is the type of person that's described in 1 Samuel 13, 14, a man after God's own heart. It's not only a man of God's sole choice, But it's also a man who knows God and has a heart that seeks to be obedient to him. And yet, before we put this man on too high of a pedestal, we know as we read further on in Scripture that he miserably failed. He was a murderous adulterer. But when faced with his sin, he didn't turn inward. He didn't look at himself or get to the point of begging someone to help him keep up appearances like Saul did. Rather, he goes to the Lord and repents, knowing that only in him would he find true satisfaction, forgiveness, and joy. A beautiful description of that is Psalm 51, of course. Against you, you only have I sinned. Create in me a clean heart. And so there are two questions for us to ponder here this morning as we think about how God looks on the heart. The first, what's going on in your heart? That doesn't mean that I'm interested in hearing about your blood pressure or cholesterol numbers, Uh, You don't need to submit those to the church office this week. I don't need to know that you've been following the seven heart-healthy steps on the Internet, uh, that you're eating well and everything like that. But I mean, how are you caring for your heart spiritually? Are you more concerned on the appearance that you present to the world, whether that's your physical appearance or in your personality or what you have, or are you more concerned about feeding your heart so that you can grow in your love for the Lord and feel that rest that only comes in Him? We want to say it's the second. The Sunday school or Bible class answer is the second. But in the actual daily working out of our day-to-day lives, what do our actions, what do our life really show? And far too often, I think we're guilty of the first, where we work so hard and put so much time into getting the outside of ourselves perfect and pristine, that image that everybody else will see, so that we can feel valued and accepted that we oftentimes leave little room for cultivating a heart that loves and serves the Lord. And this cultivating work is not easy. It takes time. And I know for many of us, time is not something that grows on trees. I know for many of you, the day starts early, perhaps far too early for you to get a little bit of time in the Word. For others of you, the work shift ends, and then you come home to the task of parenting. And in between the parenting, you're uh, emptying the dishwasher and you're getting the trash out, which seemingly leaves no spare time until really late at night. And by that point, if you're, unless you're me, I mean, if you're me, uh, all you want to do is turn on HGTV and pretend, at least in my case, that you can fix up a house like Chip and Joe Gaines, which is not the case. But take some time this week and do a bit of a heart checkup Ask yourself, how are things looking on the inside? What does God see in my heart? The second question is, in the midst of our crazy lives, whether it's looking good or not, how can we then, moving forward, work in cultivating a heart that is faithful to God? And when I wrote this, when I was starting to write this initially, I was going to say it was a different starting point for whether you're a believer or a non-believer. And then I said, silly Joe, uh, rebuked myself in my head, Uh, And now I'm telling you so clearly it was important. Uh, But the answer is the same. It starts, it continues, and will always be uh, Jesus. He is the starting point. He is the greater shepherd who was to come from the same line of Jesse. And while the son of Jesse might have failed, our Lord did not. He was perfect in every way. He's the answer to the deceitfulness and the sickness that is our heart apart from him. He took our place. Paid for our sin fully and finally at the cross. And so if we want to cultivate a heart that's faithful to God, that would show to be a man or woman after God's own heart, we need to first and foremost believe in Jesus and his work on our behalf. And so do you believe that good news? Not a bad question to ask. If not, I'd love to chat further. But if you're a believer, that's wonderful. But we still need Jesus every single day. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor, is famously quoted as saying, for every look at yourself, take ten looks at Christ. Because when we see our sin, our relative failure, our insufficient appearance or growth, we need to turn and look at Jesus, the one who satisfied all of that. Bask in his all-sufficiency, resting and abiding in him. And as we rest in him, then may we join the work of sanctification alongside the Holy Spirit so that we can then cultivate a heart that loves and serves the Lord. While our justification is by grace alone, faith alone, and Christ alone, we're invited to join in the work of our sanctification with the Holy Spirit. It's hard work tilling that soil of your heart, but one that God is happy to work in and through you. And so the question is, how do we do this? And oftentimes when we get to a list of things to do as people, we are people who love law. And so we love a list of things to do. That's why people write grocery lists, and that's why they write chore lists. They get that ability to check things off. And so I just want a a quick warning not to just write some of these down and say, ah, I've done that one, I've done that one, I've done that one. Clearly, I've gained some currency with God, or he loves me more. Because, friends, God can't love you any more than he already has in Christ. And so take these thoughts and examples and have it be an outpouring of obedience because of what our Savior has done. And so, to start, it could be serving within the body. We have plenty of needs here, and a no number of you are already serving, and we're so thankful for that. It doesn't go unnoticed. But there could be moments where you could serve. Maybe it's also just serving your neighbor, raking some leaves for somebody who might need it in town. It's doing that thing that you know the Lord is prompting you to do, whether that's talking to somebody or whether that's uh, doing the right thing even when nobody else is doing it and you've kind of been ignoring it, but you know that "Ah, I probably should do that. It's doing it. It's sitting down with a friend who's struggling in their marriage and listening to them. It's turning on the radio at the WJTL or another worship station and listening to some songs and maybe even singing along. It's looking at the memory verse that's on your bathroom mirror, in your bedroom, or even in your car. And it's actually memorizing it. It's reading a Bible story at the end of the night with your kiddos, and then talking through that with them. It's spending time on your knees in prayer before our Lord, the creator of the universe, confessing our sin, acknowledging our failures, but then looking forward and looking at Christ, reflecting on the goodness of our God and his character. It's joining up with a community group or meeting up with your grow group for accountability. It's inundating yourselves with the word, whether that's on audiobook as you're driving uh, to your work or whether that's with the old hardback. It's joining the body on a Sunday morning here and making that a priority to hear from God's word, to worship alongside brothers and sisters in Christ. It's really engaging in the discipleship journey, a growth in holiness. And these are just the tip of the iceberg of some ways that you can invest in a heart that loves the Lord and seeks to serve him. But the important thing is to remember that as you do that, that the spirit is doing that work in you. He's refining you, he's strengthening you, and he's preparing you for whatever he has next. The heart matters to God. And so how are you and I cultivating one that loves him? So we see the rejection of Eliab clearly stated. But then God is going to move on. And here we get to verse 8 and 9. Jesse called Abinadab, made him pass before Samuel. He said, nope, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. And we already know what's about to happen as the rest of the sons come through. No, 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 no. We have to put ourselves again in Samuel's shoes. He was given the command to go and to anoint a son of Jesse, and yet seemingly having seen all of the sons, there's not a single one there. That is looking to be the king. And so, God, what's happening? And so, probably feeling perhaps a little sweat on the brow and maybe a little, uh, the collars getting a little tighter around him, he sheepishly asks, you know, Jesse, hey, do you have anybody else? I know you just showed me all seven of your sons, but perhaps is there anyone? Has the one son gotten locked in the closet? Is he down at the market? Where is he? Is there anyone else possible around? Jesse? Why, yes, I do. The youngest, the run to the litter, but he's caring for the sheep. Well, get him in here, says Samuel. We're not having the meal until he arrives. The youngest son, not even invited to the sacrifice and to the meal. He wasn't even a thought in his father's eyes because he had more important things to do to tend to the sheep. But Samuel says, call him and bring him. And upon his arrival, probably with a little bit of scent of sheep, the Lord he comes before them, and the Lord declares, this is he. Anoint him. This is my new shepherd king. God doesn't look on the outward appearances. He looks on the heart. The young shepherd boy from the littlest clan in Judah, the one you at least expect to be chosen by God, is now about to be anointed king. But this is exactly how God operates, isn't it? He turns the tables on the expectations of man and instead takes the forgotten, the outcast, the runts of the litter and uses them for his kingdom purposes. Samuel, of all people, should have remembered this as he was born to a barren woman. And it's no surprise that God does this here again with this young boy because he had done the same thing years earlier with his great-grandmother Ruth, who was an alien in a foreign land until the Lord brought around Boaz, to redeem her. And God's continual work of turning the tables on man's expectations, at least in Scripture, continues as we get to the greater son of this shepherd boy, King Jesus, the Messiah coming to earth. Jesus was not the king people wanted, nor the king that people expected. Humility surrounding his birth, born in a stall, the son of a carpenter. The people wanted uh, the red carpet to be rolled out for this Messiah, for this king to come and be the warrior king, riding in on his trusty steed, finally setting things right against God's enemies. Instead, our Lord came riding on a donkey as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Having surprisingly anointed this unlikely son of Jesse, we finally hear the name we've been waiting to hear, The Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. It takes until verse 13 for David's name to actually be mentioned. And I think that's because it's meant to emphasize that this is God's choice. God who said, I'm going to send you to Jesse. I have provided for myself a king among his sons. I will show you what to do. I will declare to you who it is. That God chose this shepherd boy, David, to be his next king. And then he equips him with the Holy Spirit from that day forward, the text says, for the purpose of being king. Unlike as we'll see with Saul momentarily, it was that day forward, it was a permanent indwelling of the Spirit. And so here begins the rise of David, God's chosen king. But how are things looking for the current king? Well, I'd argue not well to say the least. Let's look through 14 to 23. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So the Holy Spirit comes upon David to empower him to be the next king and then the Holy Spirit has left Saul, signifying that rejection from God. And no sooner has that spirit, the spirit of the Lord left than a lowercase s spirit has come to torment Saul. And who is the sender of this spirit? None other than the Lord, the one who had just chosen David as king. So as God was sovereign in control of his choice of David, his new king, he is solely in control of the judgment and the rejection of Saul. But yet when we read this, it can sound disconcerting. How can the God of all love, God who is good, send a harmful spirit? Isn't that unfair? Just a few thoughts as we wrap up. God is a good and all-loving God, but he's also a just God meaning he's perfectly within his right as the Lord of the universe to punish and judge those who transgress his commands, which if anybody's curious, that's all of us. But if anything that we see in Scripture, we see that God has been merciful over and over, avoiding and relenting from his punishment. As we deserve more, and yet the Lord relents. The second thing is that while God is not the one doing the evil or is the harmful spirit himself, he is lord overall. And so therefore he can use harmful things to accomplish his sovereign force, sovereign purposes. As Alistair Begg says, this harmful spirit was an instrument of God's will and was not an actor in its own right. He answered solely to God's purpose and power. And yet that could still possibly leave us feeling less than satisfied. Okay, God is in control of it, and he has sent it. But let's go to the pages of Scripture, which is what we should be doing when we have a case of this to see, are there any other examples? And yes, we do see many. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the person I'm named after, Mr. Joseph, Genesis 37 to 50, the up and downs of Joseph's life. And then we get to Genesis 50, right at the end, what what man had intended for evil, what God intended for good. God was working his sovereign purpose through Joseph. The story of Israel and Babylon, God had relented. This is, we're in an okay time here with David, but it, moving forward, we know that the people turned to idols of wood and metal and stone, anything that they could get their hands on, it seemed. Turning away from God, and God had relented and relented, and then eventually he draws up Babylon to be used to execute his judgment on his people for the purpose that they would turn back to him in repentance. And then, of course, the story of his own son, Jesus. Jesus, the perfect son of God, without sin, taken by evil men and hung on the cross, but yet it is through his death and resurrection that we might have life have the offer of salvation given to us. And so the spirit is not something that was operating outside the bounds of God's sovereign control, but was perfectly under it. As we'll see that he uses this to introduce David into the life of King Saul. So upon seeing the unrest, the fits of rage and the deepening madness, Saul's servants say, well, let's get somebody to play some music for you. Let's get someone to come and give a little bit of music therapy. But who? And again, we know the answer. But who? Who in all the land could be this person? Well, here's God's providence at work once more. There's a guy who knows a guy. He's seen. There's that language again. He's seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, skillful and plain, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Quite a description and a far cry from the run to the litter, not even invited to the banquet. Now, we don't know how much time had transpired between uh, sixteen one to 13 and 14 to 23. But what a description of David, giving credence to the fact that this was a man after God's own heart and that the Spirit was working in his life. And so David is sent for by Saul. And he comes to serve alongside Saul, and we're going to see that he learns a lot as he's working under Saul, preparing him for when he will be king. But oh, isn't it ironic how the rejected king calls the future king to come and be around him? David is still going to be serving until that time comes when he will be brought in as the king. So the question is, years later as we sit in our chairs here on a Sunday morning in September, where do we go from here? I think, first of all, we need to recognize that our vision is oftentimes cloudy, like Samuel and Jesse. We too often judge others and ourselves by the outward appearance, deeming people worthy or unworthy based on what we see. But second, that God's vision is clear. He cares for and knows your heart. So much so that he sent his only son, Jesus, to fix the problem of our sin-sick heart. He didn't need to, but out of his great love he did so that we might be people who are called a man or a woman after God's own heart. So I end with the questions we talked about earlier today. What's going on in your heart? And how are you seeking to cultivate a heart that loves and is faithful to God? It's not easy labor. The ground can be stubborn, filled with rocks, but it's not anything that we undertake alone. By the work of the Spirit within us, we can begin to see those sweet little moments of growth along the way as we strive to serve and follow our one true King. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that... Uh, The story of Scripture does not end with just the anointing of King David, but rather uh, it involves a greater shepherd, a greater son of David, King Jesus, who comes in and makes a difference, who comes in and sees the depth of our own sinfulness and goes to the cross and pays for it fully and finally. wasn't what we would expect from people He wasn't what even some people wanted, and yet he's what exactly we needed. So we thank you for the grace, for the mercy that is shown in the sending of Christ, our Lord, our Savior. And we thank you that now through the Holy Spirit, we can grow, grow in our knowledge of you and grow in our love for you all by his work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.